are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today, we have with us in the studio Lance Barney. Lance is a massage therapist, cuddle party host, and divorced former Mormon. We'll be right back with Lance, but first, let's talk about anger. Okay, this is one I don't really want to talk about. I like to be nice and friendly and happy, depressed or not, and I'm feeling angry lately. It's never a comfortable feeling. It's not something I appreciate about myself, but my mom is visiting, and I keep feeling angry with her because she puts something where I don't want it, or she's asking me a question, or she's hung up my laundry, even though I said, don't worry about it, I'm going to do it, or whatever it is, I feel angry. And it's a perfectly fine emotion, actually. It's one of those emotions women are discouraged from expressing. I feel a big taboo for feeling, but it's as good as joy, right? It's as normal and healthy as joy, as pleasure, as anything else. It's just something that I have been I've been taught over the years to not do and that I judge myself for feeling. So I looked up an article in Psychology Today, The Role of Anger and Depression, Turning Anger on Ourselves Contributes to the Severity of Depression. This is by Lisa Firestone, PhD. Sigmund Freud used to refer to depression as anger turned inward. While many people may regard this as an overly simplistic approach to the most common mental health disorder in the world, there is no doubt that anger plays a significant role in depression. As one study from 2016 found, when it comes to emotional disorders in general, the presence of anger has negative consequences, including greater symptom severity and worse treatment response. Researchers concluded that based on evidence, anger appears to be an important and understudied emotion in the development, maintenance, and treatment of emotional disorders. When it comes specifically to depression, science seems to be further supporting Freud's theory, showing more and more how anger contributes to symptoms. A UK study from 2013 suggested that going inward and turning our anger on ourselves contributes to the severity of depression. Having worked with depressed clients for more than 30 years, these findings were not surprising to me. Many of the people I've worked with who struggle with depression also share the common struggle of turning their anger on themselves. As much as I try to help my clients express their anger rather than take it on and turn it inward, I witness firsthand how hard it is often for people to interrupt this process. It's a challenge for them to recognize the nasty way they treat themselves. They are significantly more critical of themselves than they are of others. And then that's an excerpt, and this is an excerpt at the end. Ultimately, accepting that anger plays a role in our depression should be an empowering tool in our fight to feel better. When people express their anger outwards in a healthy, adaptive manner, they feel less depressed. Accessing and expressing this anger isn't a matter of acting out, being explosive, or feeling bitter toward our surroundings. In fact, it means exactly the opposite. It's an act of standing up for ourselves and accepting that we are not who our voices are telling us that we are. It's a process of facing up to things that hurt us, but also facing off the inner enemy we all possess that drives us deeper into our suffering. The more we can take our own side and resist our tendency to turn our anger on ourselves, the more compassionate and alive we can feel in facing any challenge, including depression. 
I thought that was interesting and wise. I feel right now my anger isn't really turned inward. It's mostly turned outward toward everything that seems to happen around me. I'm like, and so I do have that negative voice that comes out on repeat about mostly perfectionism of just why did you do that? You should do this, get that done. You're falling behind, get caught up. It's a like little constant stressing voice in my head that's urging me onward. And, and sometimes I feel as motivating, but is mostly really horrible and not a good place to be in. And I, I feel that being angry because something's happening is probably nothing to do with what's happening. So I've been having these little conversations with my mom where one or the other of us feels angry and I'll say, hey, mom, you seem kind of upset. What's going on? (laughs) And then I'll tell her, hey, I'm feeling really angry towards you right now. (laughs) This is why. And this is what's going through my head. And, you know, just let me express that because it shouldn't matter how you hang up the laundry. Like that should not matter. That's, I love my mom. Like who cares? It's nice. She's hanging up my laundry. That should be a nice thing. But this is an ongoing thing with us of territory and space. And every year we're so glad to each other. We have a little honeymoon stage where we go shopping for Christmas stuff and decorate a tree and have like the best, best time ever. And then about Four weeks into it, we start to snip at each other and be irritated. There's no one better to bring up your childhood frustrations than your very own parents. (laughs) So I'm trying to be at peace with this and have the perspective of like, I'm feeling angry. I just have to tell her I'm feeling angry and I don't know why. And maybe think about the why. And she's nice enough to give me the space for that and then to provide the same space for her. That seems healthy. That seems to ward off depression and it seems to make us get along better to be honest and have that place to say, I'm angry, even especially when you don't know why, because most of my anger is completely irrational. It's the littlest, stupidest things that sometimes are connected to really big old things. That's what I'm doing this week. I hope you all are in a good place with your anger and your depression and that It's turned outward in a healthy, adaptive way, as the article said, or at least you're letting yourself express it in some way that feels safe to you. Much love. Today we have with us in the studio Lance Barney. Lance is a massage therapist, cuddle party host, and divorced former Mormon. Hello, Lance. Welcome to the Depression Session. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. What do you want to share with our audience? What's new with you? So today's been just a pleasant day that I'm enjoying the weather very much. We're so spoiled here. I got to um, to go and, and do chair a chair massage event today, which was just something I enjoy very much. Everybody that comes to get a free massage because their employer's paying for it seems to be very gracious and, and appreciative, and so it's it's easy to uh, to make a, a dozen people happy. Um, that that feels feels like a nice thing to do on a on a on a beautiful day. Today I was up at the Westward Look with a convention thing going on there, and and having the, the view of the mountain on in a shaded patio and really a, a nice place to practice my trade. So that was something I enjoyed oh. today. Was it outside then? It was. It was. that uh, they, oh. they, they had uh, me and a few of my colleagues set up outside in a shaded thing overlooking the Catalina Mountains. My friend Sandy and I were thinking of doing a vacation and going to Las Cruces and going to the hot springs. And then we looked at the weather map. The nicest weather in the country right now is Tucson. <laughs> 
So a couple of weeks ago, instead of going somewhere, we did a staycation here and went and did fun things in Tucson. We're like, what do tourists do in Tucson? Let's do that. And we had a great time because there is this, I've never experienced, I've been in Tucson for 12 years. I've never experienced this extended fall. Usually Tucson's like 108, 110, 104, 56. It just goes right into winter. And there's a little brief period of this gorgeous weather, but we've had it for months. Yeah. And what's, what is your business? As far as, do you work for a company? Do you? I do. I do work for, for another company that places me. Yeah. So it's not your own It is. Your own it's practice. not my own practice. This is not my first career. The part of my lifestyle change has been uh, moving from accounting to bodywork. Wow. And, uh, and so I took a year off and went to massage school and, and this is new for me. I do not know what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> so you went from helping people with their money to helping them with the stress from the money or something. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The, 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 the same people that needed uh, some, uh, maybe some budgeting help now, they, 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 they don't get that for me. They just get some some tension out of their neck worked out so that they can aren't in pain. <laughs> wow. So on that note, Lance, tell us the story of your depression. So I want to talk about this relationship that I have with religion and with my sexuality and and what has happened around that and how that contributed to setting me up for having difficulty. This goes back to my mother. My mother is a sexual abuse survivor and she actually lived on the street for a short period of time at the age of 13 years old and was taken in by a Mormon family and she was physically and sexually abused pretty severely and ran away from home. As a result of that, she became a devout Mormon. It was very important to her because of maybe some unhealed stuff around all the shame and the sexual abuse and also just who she was as a person. It was very important to her to be a fine Christian woman, a devout Mormon, and eventually a good mother. What had happened eventually when <clears throat> she married my, my father and had uh, seven children, in addition to us, there were at least a dozen people from her extended family that would come to our farm and work almost like a halfway house. That Some when they were on parole or probation, others before they got into trouble. So I had uncles and cousins and aunts that would come and live with us for at least a year, sometimes longer. So one of those was an uncle with whom I had a sexual relationship with from the time I was six until I was eight. And the way that relationship ended was that I attacked him with a baseball bat. And when that happened, that happened when he began giving attention to my brother. Interestingly enough, later on when my brother was going through actually a, a rehab and during family week, my brother described it as if I was protecting him. And the truth was that I was jealous, right? And so what I was doing was an eight-year-old that didn't have the emotional sophistication to do anything but but attack. And, and as a result of the attack and a broken lamp and, a, and an injured uncle, <laughs> that the truth came out that there was a sexual relationship. This was a huge embarrassment to my mother. I remember sitting in the, in the kitchen, standing kind of off to the side while he was escorted out with a suitcase. He was ostracized, never allowed back, never seen again, never spoken to again. In looking back, the actual sexual relationship wasn't nearly as traumatic as it ending, it bringing up this thing that brought up a lot of shame, that brought some weird energy in that we could not talk about this. Combined with some definitions of what is chaste and what is proper within the Mormon church, 
that it, it, it kind of set me up for taking on more than maybe was really all mine. And that was the beginning of, of, of some of my emotional difficulties, including some suicide attempts early on that were not... What I would do is I would grab some twine and head out to the, to the hay barn and stand at the end of a hay bale and throw some twine over, a, over the rafters and put it around my neck and stand at the end of the hay bale, but I had no intention of actually jumping. It was some sort of melancholy, I don't know what it was. It wasn't much of an attempt. I do remember some other pressure that came around that dynamic of the interaction with the church. Well, first of all, I did also have this beautiful social structure and lots of caring. This small community, everybody knew me and everybody cared about me. And there was lots of love and support. And being in the middle of that community was, I didn't even know how wonderful it was until I see how other people were and how they were raised. And and so there was an interesting dynamic that on the one hand, there are some things that came up that were a little bit difficult. And also, on the other hand, I was raised with much love and support, what really does support good humanity. So I, I had, I, so I, like both. When I was 10 years old, I remember uh, riding back in a van from a baptism. The reason I know I was 10 years old is because my cousin, it was his baptism, and I, since I know how I'm two years older than him, he was eight years old when he was baptized. And the sermon during that piece included some doctrine that at baptism, there's some additional accountability that before you're baptized, that you're covered by grace. That's not the exact language of the Mormon, but that's the meaning of what, what this sermon was and, and what the doctrine is, that, you're, that you are, you're covered. After baptism, there's an additional accountability. I could not remember, I couldn't remember if I'd been sexual with my uncle after I'd been baptized. So I didn't know if I was covered by grace. And I wanted to talk to somebody. My father was a church leader. And <clears throat> actually, soon after that, I called the suicide prevention hotline. And I got to talk about it. And it was really great. Like I had a five to ten minute conversation. It was really, really hopeful. Towards the end of the conversation, they asked me information. They found out that I was Mormon. And the counselor on the other end of the phone was excited. He said, great, because, you know, you guys have a great community. That there'll be support for you here. And he literally referred me back to my own father, which was the person that I couldn't talk to about. So, so I, I, that was another piece of this feeling out on an island. The resulting mild depression, what happened at first was actually a little bit of an overperformance, like that I reacted even though I had depressive episodes and, and, and had some difficulties now and, now and then that I overperformed. I overperformed in school and in athletics and in other places. And eventually I was married in, in, in the church and, 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 and started a family. In 2001, I was sitting in Sunday school class as an adult. And they talked about some, some new pieces around teenage pregnancy and supporting young women that were, were pregnant and helping them, mostly convincing them to, to adopt rather than to have an abortion, that sort of thing. And part of their discussion was is that but don't worry, abstinence is still our primary goal and reminded everyone there of this activity that they did that I hadn't known about because they only do this with the young women, with the girls. And what this activity is, is when these girls are being brought in, they're 12-year-old girls, they, for this activity, they give each of them a piece of chewing gum and after they chew it for a bit, they go back and they collect it and make it into one large ball. 
and then they offer the gum back to one of the girls. And when they refuse it, the analogy they bring in is that this is what it is like if you were sexual before marriage, that you've lost your savor and nobody will want you. I was offended by this. I had, I'd never heard that this was a regular practice and had been done for years and years and years. I was that. I was the one that had lost his savor and that nobody would want. So I got up and walked out. After talking to my therapist, I left the Mormon church. Soon after, my wife filed for a divorce. It's not really just about me leaving the, the church. With, there was, I mean, my wife was living with somebody that was dealing with depression and having all of those things and had plenty of reason to leave me. This was the final straw. And, and it was easy to do, like that if I wasn't in the church, that I broke a big enough agreement that it was easy for her. Or I don't know if it was easy. It was enough excuse for her to leave. So after that, I had a pretty big depressive episode and ended up spending 40 days in a local mental hospital for the depression. In there, I found lots of resources, including exposed to Native American ceremony in the sweat lodge. So when I left, and, and um, even though I still struggled off and on, um, I began my new path. One of the pieces that I want to make sure that I talk about is that, especially around people that have had sexual trauma, the experience I've had with the cuddle parties have been just fantastic for me. And I've had some people say it seems creepy for, for me to host these cuddle parties, like that somehow it's inappropriate. It's just, that just is amazing to me because it is medicine. It is really the thing that's had the most positive impact. I have the, the capacity <clears throat> to dissociate around my own sexuality, and I have the capacity, the, like turning in the, the, the anger inward, turning in my own sexual energy inward, and that shameful spiral is a source of depression for me. When I first went to my very first cuddle party, I left elated. And I actually also left enamored with a woman there that I thought must just, it must be her, right? She must be. And I'm really glad that the cuddle party rules are you don't really have contact information. And so that was actually a blessing that I didn't have access to to go off and try to have this romantic interlude with someone and, and project it all onto them that I just had to wait for the next cuddle party and and but and she never showed up again. And I know her now actually, but uh, I didn't didn't know her for for several years after that first cuddle party. So this whole piece of finding quality human connection, um, nurturing exactly what I had until I was six years old in real measure has been the best medicine for me. I do still have some depressive episodes. I'm now more than two months off of the antidepressants and I host cuddle parties weekly. That with other things that help me stay in my body and stay present and not to dissociate are the things that seem to help me live a lifestyle that works well with me, with my depression. I still do have dark moments and dark days, even dark weeks maybe. With my newfound community of choice, I, um, I, I do have something that works. The, the Mormon church works for a lot of people, not for me, and I need community. So I went and made one, and that's, that's how I live, and that's what works for me today. Thanks for hearing me. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for sharing your story. It's a hard one, right? 
There's a lot of pieces in there. I really relate to the need for community and just building your own. It's something that I'm, I, my artwork is about that. My school teaching is about that, like creating an art club so students have somewhere they can just go if they want to, where there'll be people working on stuff. My brunches are about that because I grew up in a town of 900 people where everybody knew you. And everybody cared. And I think that there's a power to that. So anyway, I just wanted to say really related to that. And what was that like building your own community, though? Was that hard, easy? Did it fall together? It took a long time. And I didn't know I was doing it at first. And um, I currently live in co-housing and have the community with the cuddle parties that, that we meet regularly. And, and my men's group that I've had for a long time. And so it's, it's kind of like community by committee. There wasn't a big effort. I wanted to be in an intentional community for some time. And there was a friend of mine while I was living in one intentional community thinking of creating a larger one. She said, okay, well, what is the intent of your community? And I said that we all know each other and we support each other and we're close. And she said, well, have you tried co-housing? So I actually didn't have to start from scratch. I just found a good co-housing to join and then actually moved to a different one later. So that was a big part of it. It is almost as if I've been exposed to good community, so I already knew its value, and it was natural for me to seek it out. So no, it wasn't hard. It was actually part of, of, of who I am and who I want to be in a natural flow of what I welcome into my life. And can you, for our listeners that don't know as much about co-housing, can you just tell them what that looks like? like sure. The... Sure. So in co-housing, in, in order to live in the community, you have to volunteer 10 hours per month for the community. Each little townhouse has no front or backyard, but everything else is owned in common. And so it's, a, it's a, like a commune light that you still have your own private property with a small house with a kitchen and everything. And then there's a large community building where we all can eat together. And so if you live in co-housing, you can expect, for example, we, you know, every Monday we have potluck together. Every 10th, 20th, and 30th, we have a common meal together. We have chicken, garden, fruit trees. And in order to live there, you volunteer to be on one of the teams. I'm on the landscape team and I take care of the lawn. And I also am on the locavore team to make sure that the prickly pear and the kumquats and the the things that take some processing get utilized in the community, the mesquite pod beings and that sort of thing. And so that's what a co-housing is. The co-housing is, is set up so that you eat together some and mm. that you play together some and you work together some. But with, you have your own little space. But you have right. your own your own your own small one. You're not all roommates. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Like that a true commune is like everything's owned in common. And this is like, you, and there's an interesting piece that if you want privacy, you can have it at any time. All the front doors of all the houses have a screen or a blind. If you don't want somebody to knock on your door to bring eggplant from the garden or to chat, you pull down your blind. That's the sign that everything from the baby sleeping to I just want to be alone. And if your blind is open, then you're free to knock and to, <laughs> to pop in, not to pop over, not walk in without being invited, but to, to knock and to, to connect, which is, I just think, brilliant. Like, yeah. That's a, that you want to be close with your neighbors and sometimes don't want to be everything from taking a nap to wanting some privacy just to be alone because you would rather be with plants than people for a while. It's interesting and perfect that you're on this episode of the show where I'm talking about anger because one of the things my mom and I are doing is she's going to build a little house in my yard. 
And it was getting really stressful for, for her. She was getting upset. I said, Mom, what's that about? And we, we just had a sit down where we each got some space to talk and reflect. What it really, the heart of it was, she was feeling a little bit like she was being relegated to the backyard because she's always lived in my house when she's come to visit for four months. And she's like, I'm going to be just alone there like I am back in Michigan. And I went, oh, I totally get that. And then I really want her to have her own place because I I love having quiet. I love having my own space. I love coming home to nobody. I love not being in a relationship, actually. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I love just coming home and coming and going and no one cares if I'm there or not. That is actually lovely for me. I don't know why. It feels free. Like I have no schedule. But I told her that I want her here. I want to I want to play Yahtzee with you every night. I want to have dinner with you every night. I want to see you every single day. That's why I want you here. And at the end of the conversation, she said, thank you. She was crying and I was crying. And I said, for what? For loving you? And she said, yes. <laughs> There's these these territorial things and these angry things we do every single visit. And what I want is for that to be gone and all the good stuff to be there. Now, we'll still get mad at each other. <laughs> we'll still fight over the laundry line or something because we're going to share the washing machine or whatever it is. But just so that she has her little turf and she can set it up exactly how she wants. And I have my little turf and it's set up how I want. But we'll have a shared space. We're making a cohabitation. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> I didn't know that's what we were doing. <laughs> so one of the things I don't want to glaze over with this and, and ignore was the sexual abuse. I don't know what age difference between you and your uncle, but there was a situation and then piled on top of it, all this shame, cultural shame, and then your mother's individual shame and how, how horrible that is. I think that that is a relatable experience that you whatever your background is, that the abuse comes, not just like what happened and that maybe there was a power difference, but that it goes into all these other things that have to do with your family and your place in your family and your religion and your place in your religion and your community and your place in your your community. And I really felt that heartbreak of that moment of like, you know, where you cried and you said, was it before or after? Am I condemned or not, basically? Am I unclean or not, sort of? And in that, I just wondered if you could give words of wisdom. How, how do you get through that if somebody's going through it now or still struggling with it? The system needs to change. A difficulty that can happen within the strict religious confines are that there's, there's a dual purpose. The church is protecting itself and has its own agenda. And it isn't necessarily always on the side of, of people struggling with their sexuality. And as long as you have that dual agenda and you don't have a true advocate, so my advice is get a true advocate. That is the difference. Somebody that is willing to say, I've, I'm on your side no matter what. I don't, I, it doesn't matter what the, the doctrine is. It doesn't matter what the social structures are. I believe in you, and I'm here to help you. 
and uh, some of the, the the things that happen within these with that dual purpose it, that that help can't be achieved and so and it and it only takes one it only takes one true advocate is somebody that's truly interested in making sure that you have what you need and i eventually got that yeah. but i had to find that outside of the mormon community well that was a perfect note to end the show on. Thanks so much for being on the depression session. Thanks for having me. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.